Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 10. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please be with us as we study your word here together. You inspired the fisherman Peter so long ago to write this letter to strangers scattered. And I pray that you would use it even now to feed your sheep. I pray that as we study a few of the things that Peter has to say in this short portion of his letter, that we'd be edified and built up. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So we're joining our study of 1 Peter. Peter is an interesting author in Scripture. His letters are short. In some ways, I was just talking to Paul, in some ways they're like almost summaries of what Peter, of what Paul wrote. They're short, they're concise, and they're written so that even a baby Christian with very little knowledge of the Scriptures can read through and be encouraged and built up just based on what you see on the surface. Uh, this text contains one of those types of verses. Verse 9 says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Those sorts of affirmations can be read by a baby Christian and can encourage and edify that believer. But Peter's letters also have another layer to them. Peter assumes a great deal of background knowledge that, if possessed opens up new treasures in his letter to the reader. Uh, I think of a quotation from uh, an early church writer named Jerome, who said that the scriptures are shallow enough that a babe can drink without fear of drowning, but deep enough that a theologian can swim uh, without ever reaching the bottom. And Peter's letters are like that. This morning, I want to look at one idea that Peter develops, and it's the idea of priesthood. And in order to understand 
more fully Peter's description of the priesthood, I want to go back and consider some Old Testament texts that I think will add richness to what we have here. And so when we ultimately reach our text, perhaps we'll understand it better than we would have otherwise. And so let's start at the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2. I want to look at a couple of verses in Genesis 1 and 2 together. What sort of priests are we meant to be? And what is a priest? What is the priesthood? These are very common words. And I want to suggest that the first example of a priest that we see in Scripture is Adam. I believe he was a royal priest to God. Genesis 2.15 says this, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And Genesis 1.28 says this, says, the Lord God blessed them, speaking of Adam and Eve, the Lord God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we have two different tasks that are given to Adam. He's to tend and keep, and he's to have dominion. These are kingly and priestly duties. The words tend and keep uh, they appear, the, the he, underlying Hebrew words are translated elsewhere, for example, in Numbers 3-7, to refer to the priest's duties in the temple. The priest was to keep the temple and to do the service of the tabernacle. Uh, those words translated are just the, the words we have here, to tend and to keep. And so it might not be accurate to say that Adam has priestly duties, but maybe it's more appropriate to say that the priests in the temple had Adamic duties, and what they were really doing was echoing this prototypical Adamic priesthood. And what was he doing that was similar to what the priests were doing? Well, what was the garden? The garden was the place of God's presence. Genesis 3.8 tells us that the garden was the place that God would walk in the cool of the day. And the priests in the temple also ministered in God's presence because God made his dwelling place in the temple of the tabernacle. The other duty given to Adam and Eve was to have dominion. What's this mean? Well, our English word dominion comes from the Latin word dominus. It means Lord. To have dominion is to have lordship. It's a word of, of authority, of royalty. It's kingly authority. Adam and Eve were to, were to have dominion, and Adam was to tend and keep. These are kingly duties. These are priestly duties. But, as we know, Adam failed. They failed in multiple ways. It was, it was a beautiful design. I mean, God tells them here, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Every living thing that moved on the earth was not in the garden. And so this command implies expansion. Adam and Eve were to mediate God's presence from the garden in which they ministered to the rest of creation as they spread his order. But they failed. Adam failed to tend and keep the garden. The serpent entered, deceived Eve. Adam ate from the tree. And in Adam, all died. God expels Adam and Eve from the garden, but before he does, he places a cherubim, or, or multiple cherubim. He's placed them east of the garden. This is in Genesis 3.24. He says, so he drove out the man. Adam was no longer worthy 
to be a priest in God's presence. He drove him out and says in, in verse 24 of chapter 3, he drove out the man, he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This cherubim was to guard the way to the tree of life. And again, the word underlying the word guard is the exact same Hebrew word underlying the word keep. Because Adam failed to keep the garden, the cherubim were appointed as substitute keepers, and they were stationed east of Eden. So let's move forward in the narrative of Scripture to Genesis 14. In Genesis 14, we see the first use of the word priest. Although I believe that we can see Adam's priestly duties in Genesis 2, the first use of the word priest occurs in Genesis 14. And it's used to describe a mysterious figure named Melchizedek. Genesis 14, 18 says this, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. This encounter occurred when Abraham was returning from having defeated four pagan kings and rescuing his nephew Lot. He had spoils of war. He meets this figure named Melchizedek, who's never been mentioned in the narrative of Scripture up to this point and never appears again. He's referred to, but this is the only interaction between an individual and Melchizedek in Scripture. But this man, Melchizedek, was very great. We can see that by observing two things that the author to the Hebrews will talk about later confirms for us. We see two things here. This man, Abraham, who was very great, who had just gone and defeated four pagan kings and was returning with the spoils of war, meets Melchizedek, who's described as a king. He's the king of Salem. And he's also a priest. So we see echoes of Adam, a king and a priest. Abraham meets him, and this man Melchizedek blesses Abraham. As the author of the Hebrews tells us, the lesser is blessed by the better. The lesser is blessed by the greater. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and blesses him. And then Abraham pays him tribute. He gives him a tithe. He gives him a tenth of the spoils of war. You don't give spoils of war to inferiors. You give them to superiors. Who was Melchizedek? Well, Hebrews 7 describes and explains this encounter. Hebrews 7 says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abram, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abram also gave a tenth part of all, being first translated king of righteousness, that's what his name means, Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Who was he? It says, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. This is a mysterious figure. There's all kinds of ideas about who and what Melchizedek might be. I don't know. But with the author of the Hebrews, verse 4, consider this. Consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And then here's something interesting. Down in verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 7, it says this. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, 
for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Who was Levi? Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob, also called Israel, has 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. Levi was the name of one of those sons and the name of one of the tribes of Israel. And the author to the Hebrews here is making the point that Levi, who we'll later learn is the priestly tribe, was paying tithes. He was inferior to Melchizedek. Before we move on from Melchizedek, I find this very interesting in verse 18. Then Melchizedek, what did he bring to Abraham when he met him? It says he brought out bread and wine. And I don't think we're so blind as to not see the order of Melchizedek present with us in our meetings. Next, we're moving on in the narrative to the Exodus. Exodus 19. In Exodus 19, God presents the Israelites with a unique opportunity. This is Abraham's family. They've grown to a great multitude in the land of Egypt. They were in slavery. God has led them out. He's led them through the Red Sea. He's guarded them with a cloud and a pillar of fire. And he's led them to the foot of Mount Sinai because the reason that he led them out of Egypt was not so that they could be free to wander in the wilderness, but so that they could serve him. And he leads them to the foot of Mount Sinai and he offers them the opportunity to become the new Adam. Obviously, we know Christ is the new and better Adam, like we just sang. But this is an interesting thing that he offers them. He says this. He says in verse 4 of chapter 19, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He says, you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Did they become a kingdom of priests? All right. So we're talking about the Levitical priesthood. There's really three things I want to notice. We could talk for hours and hours and hours about the Levitical priesthood and all the different compare and contrast, but there's three things. One, it was centered on the temple. The Levites' service was centered on the temple. That's where they offered sacrifices. That's where they made intercession for the people. That's where they taught the law. The Levites served in the temple. The verse in Numbers 3-7 that we read earlier, that's where they were to keep and do service. That's where they were to tend and keep. They were to tend and keep the worship of God and mediate His presence in the temple. Why the temple? Because that is where God dwelt with man. God's presence came down and dwelt in the temple, specifically above the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim, which was veiled because God's presence was not unmediated. We did not have open access to God. It was veiled with a veil from floor to ceiling on which were embroidered cherubim and that veil was placed to the east of the ark. So just as God placed cherubim to the east of Eden to limit access to his presence, so he placed a veil to represent that, pres that access to God had to be mediated. The sin of the people was not covered. Only the high priest could go into 
that most holy place where the ark sat, and that only once a year, and only after he'd offered atonement for his own sins, and then the sins of the people. And he only went in with fear and trembling. But that's the Levitical priesthood, centered around the temple to mediate God's presence. A couple other things about the Levitical priesthood. One, it was not, it was emphatically not a royal priesthood. It was an exclusive priesthood. There was a, a clear and impassable line between those who were priests and those who were not priests. The priests had special clothes. They had special food. They had special rules. They had special, uh, there were special laws about what property they could own and couldn't own. They were a separate and set-apart people within the people of Israel. There was a tiered system to Israel's worship. They were not royal. Uh, no man could serve in a, both a royal capacity and in a priestly capacity, though one man tried. And I want to read the story of when one man tried to do that. Second Chronicles verse, uh, chapter 26. This is the story of King Uzziah. He started off well. It says, But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. He was the king who wanted to become a priest. He wanted to go into the temple and burn incense on the altar. So Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him were 80 priests of the Lord, valiant. While he was angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the incense altar. And Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at him, and there on his forehead he was leprous. So they thrust him out of the pal that place. And Uzziah reigned for the rest of his reign in exile. And it was it would have been hugely influential to the nation as they understood the priesthood and royalty. And so, a preview of when we get to 1 Peter, when Peter calls us a royal priesthood, that might just sound like a, a, a filler adjective as we sit here in a modern day. Oh, it's a holy priesthood, it's a royal priesthood, it's a great priesthood, it's a wonderful priesthood. Royal, there weren't royal priesthoods. The, the Levitical priesthood was not a royal priesthood. Peter's telling us that our priesthood is very distinct from the Levitical priesthood. The Levitical priesthood was also very temporary. God established the Levitical priesthood because the nation was unworthy to become a kingdom of priests. By the time Christ Jesus comes on the scene, the Levitical priesthood is not in good shape. Let's turn to Matthew 21. Have the Levitical priest, has the Levitical priesthood kept and tended the temple? Matthew 21, 12 says this. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. He had to cleanse the temple because those whose task it was to tend and keep it had failed. And how did they respond? It says, But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. I want to notice especially 
that the chief priests were indignant when they heard children crying out in the temple. And that should be a lesson to us to never have the same emotion toward children crying out among us. They failed in their duty to tend and keep the temple. And Jesus illustrated this failure in a parable in verse 33 of the same chapter. He says, here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then, last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Jesus asked the question, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it, and whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking of them. Jesus is the cornerstone, as we read in 1 Peter. And what, is, what does Peter say about that cornerstone again? He says that to you who believe... He is precious, but to those who are disobedient, to the builders that rejected him, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The chief priests were to be the builders of the kingdom, but they failed. But the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word, to which they also were appointed. Jesus promises He's going to take the kingdom from these chief priests and Pharisees and religious leaders and give it to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And that when this cornerstone falls, it will grind what was there to powder. Now, the end of the chief priests, the end of the Levitical priesthood, is a sad story. In Matthew 26, I'm going to read a few verses from the, the, the latter part of, of, Matthew 20, of, of the Gospel of Matthew. What did they do? They, first, they made a covenant with Judas. Matthew 26, 14, and 15. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. After they made a covenant with Judas Iscariot, they sent armed men to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. Matthew 26, 47 says, and while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. The chief priests then brought Jesus before the high priest, seeking condemnation. 
Matthew 26, 59 says, Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. They wanted more than anything for Jesus to die. The chief priests brought Jesus before Pontius Pilate, seeking crucifixion after they'd already obtained condemnation. Matthew 27, 1 and 2 says, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. And when it looked like the people might ask for Jesus to be released instead of Barabbas, what did the chief priests do? It says in chapter 27, verses 20 to 23, But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. And so in the final moments of the Levitical priesthood, it delivered the Lamb of God to be crucified. Although Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins, in a way we can say that the final act of the Levitical priesthood was offering the sacrifice that ended them. Little did they know, but the carpenter from Nazareth hanging on the cross was the stone which they, those who were supposed to be the builders of Israel, had rejected. And as Jesus of Nazareth breathed his last, the stone fell on the Levitical priesthood and crushed it. Matthew 27, 50 and 51 says this, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple, the veil of the temple that shielded the ark, that shielded the presence of God, the presence of God that if you were in its presence, you would die. You couldn't enter it without atoning for your sin. The veil that sat east of the ark, the veil that had the cherubim inscribed on it, the cherubim that barred our access to God's presence in the garden. And Jesus cried out again, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top. God opened the veil. He tore it in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked and the rocks were split. Now, did the chief priests recognize what had happened? Maybe some of them did. But a Roman centurion did. When he saw the things that happened, he said, Truly, this was the Son of God. The Levitical priesthood was finished in that moment. Now we read of Jesus and the priesthood that he immediately assumed upon the sacrifice of himself. This is in Hebrews 7, verse 11. He says, Now, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, if we could attain perfection through the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek? and not be called according to the order of Aaron. For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change in the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at an altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. Judah was the tribe of kings. It was not the tribe of priests. Jesus did not come from the tribe of Levi. He came from the tribe of Judah. And so when he enters his priesthood, it's not according to the temporary, inferior, exclusive Levitical priesthood. 
It's to a more ancient priesthood, a priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek, a kingly priesthood, and a holy priesthood. Peter says that our priesthood is founded on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone of the one true church. Look at what it says in verse 4 of chapter 2 of 1 Peter. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen of God and precious. We come to him as to a living stone. Verse 5, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. Christ is the cornerstone. In ancient architecture, the cornerstone was the first stone laid. It had to be precisely cut and measured because every other stone was built in relation to that cornerstone. So even small errors and imperfections over long distances could lead to errors that would make the building unsafe or unusable. But our cornerstone is cut without hands. It was cut in heaven. It's perfect. And that's what we're built upon. We're built on the foundation of Christ. This stone imagery is very interesting. It appears six times in seven verses. In verse 4, Christ is a living stone. In verse 6, he's a chief cornerstone. In verse 7, he is both the stone the builders rejected and has become the chief cornerstone. In verse 8, he's both a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And I find it particularly interesting that all of this imagery comes to us from the man to whom Jesus said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. But Peter points not to himself, but to Christ as the cornerstone on which the church is built. Notice this. Peter writes to saints scattered in Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. This is an area that occupies, in the ancient world, occupies what is now modern Turkey. If you take that area of land, if you take modern Turkey and drag it over and plop it on top of the United States, because that provides context for us, you'd have a piece of land that stretches east to west from Washington, D.C. to Kansas City, Missouri, north to south from the Great Lakes to Tennessee. This is a huge swath of land to which Peter's writing. But he writes them all and he says, you are built up a spiritual house. Christ is building only one church. And we are all living stones in that one holy temple, that one spiritual house. Every believer who is joined to Christ shares in the spiritual blessings in heavenly places that he affords. The idea of a living stone is that once we as living stones are joined to the living cornerstone, his life flows into us. And so then you have phrases like, like uh, uh, Paul in Galatians, uh, Galatians 3.20. It's a very familiar verse. He says, Galatians 3.20, um, or 2.20, I apologize. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The life which we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God. It's not us that lives, but Christ lives through us. Uh, Colossians 3.3 3 says, You died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ is our life. He lives through us. He works through us. We're united to him, and so all things that are true of him are true of us. Our priesthood flows from the fact that he is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and our priesthood is subservient to him. 
Those things, being a chosen generation, a royal uh, priesthood, a holy nation, the things that Peter says are true of us, says you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, those were conditional for Israel. They're not conditional for us. It's because we're united to Christ that these things are true. These things are true of us, not because we're, we in and of ourselves are more worthy than Israel was. It's because we are united to Christ who purchased us as his own special people with his blood and we receive the benefits of his obedience. How can we embrace these truths and live them out? First, we should desire unity and have a heart of unity toward all believers. If God is building us into the same spiritual house, we shouldn't drive wedges between ourselves and other living stones. We should refuse to divide by taking divisive names. God gave us such clear instruction. Don't say, I am of Paul. Don't say, I am of Apollos. These things are carnal. And yet, we can scarcely help but do that. Try this. When you meet another believer, avoid asking them what sort of church they go to. If they offer it, fine. But avoid asking them. And see how long you can just talk about spiritual things without declaring a team. I'm of Paul. I'm of Calvin. I am of baptism by immersion. Just enjoy fellowship. Talk about the scriptures and see where it leads. And perhaps it will result in the holy temple being built up far more than would have been possible if you'd immediately declared your team. We can also live out the truth of this teaching by reminding ourselves we are only successful in the Christian life if our work and worship is centered on Christ. We don't gather to doctrines. We don't gather to preaching. We don't gather to a particular style of music or aesthetic. We gather to Christ and Christ alone. He's the cornerstone. He's the solid rock. He's the only anchor of the soul. Our priesthood is different from the Levitical priesthood. We've talked about this some already. Theirs was not a royal priesthood, but ours is. To Peter's audience, if they read royal priesthood, it would have surprised them. And I hope we understand a little bit more this morning why. We should see a sharp distinction between our priesthood and the Levitical priesthood, but a deep continuity with Melchizedek's priesthood. And this, of course, again, is because we derive our priesthood from Christ, the living cornerstone. And because he is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, then we too are priests after this holy and royal order of priests. Notice also that the believer's priesthood is, unlike the Levitical priesthood, universal. Christ abolished the tiered system of the Levitical priesthood. In the church, all believers are priests. We must actively oppose any teaching that would restore the Levitical priesthood that Christ abolished. Sometimes such a teaching is obvious. Uh, and some groups of Christians will recognize a particular man as a priest. This is obviously a return to the Levitical system. But sometimes a teaching is subtle, as in the, what's called the clergy-laity distinction or the clergy-laity system. Have you ever been called a layman? or a lay Christian? Have you ever heard an elite group of Christians referred to as the clergy or as the ministers in contrast to the lay Christians? These are utterly unscriptural terms and categories. Uh, we must be careful not to refer to some believers as clergy and others as laity. It's utterly unscriptural. When believers abdicate their duties as believer priests to a small group, they risk becoming little more than spectators. The Bible teaches all of us are full-time ministers every minute of every day in the spheres in which God has called us. 
When I think of the clergy laity system so prevalent today, I can't help but be reminded, as all things remind me, of a quote from the Lord of the Rings. Gandalf and Pippin have just arrived at Minas Tirith in the third book, The Return of the King. Made someone's day. <laughs> Gandalf and Pippin have arrived at Minas Tirith. Minas Tirith is a city on the edge of the evil kingdom of Mordor. It was home to the throne of the rightful king of Gondor. The throne had been vacant for many years, awaiting the return of the rightful king. And in his stead, there was a hereditary steward that reigned. And the current steward's name was Denethor. In the long years since a king had sat on the throne, his return had become more of a legend than reality. Denethor described his duties this way. He says, The Lord of Gondor is not to be made the tool of other men's purposes, however worthy. And to him there is no purpose higher in the world as it now stands than the good of Gondor and the rule of Gondor. The rule of Gondor, my lord, is mine and no other man's, unless the king should come again. Gandalf replies, Unless the king should come again, said Gandalf, Well, my lord steward, it is your task to keep some kingdom still against that event which few now look to see. In that task you shall have all the aid that you are pleased to ask for. But I will say this, the rule of no realm is mine, neither of Gondor nor any other, great or small. But all worthy things that are in peril as the world now stands, those are my care. And for my part, I shall not wholly fail of my task, though Gondor should perish, if anything passes through this night that can still grow fair or bear fruit and flower again in days to come. For I also am a steward. Did you not know? The clerical system may sit on its academic throne looking down at little lay Christians. Don't let that bother you. Let God worry about those who claim power and authority for themselves. He will call them to account. For our part, we should act as faithful believer priests, regardless of what others call us. Someone may call you a lay Christian. God calls you a king and a priest. Be a faithful steward where God has placed you. Tend and keep the garden he has given you. What are our duties as believer priests? We're all equally priests before God, but what are the duties we execute? Peter says the purpose of this priesthood, verse 5, we're built into a holy priesthood to, that's the purpose, this is the purpose of the priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. First notice that these spiritual sacrifices we're to offer are only through Jesus Christ. Oftentimes, there's a, a gut reaction whenever we start talking about good works to say, oh, all our works of righteousness are filthy rags. That's, I think, a, sometimes a misapplication of that passage of Scripture. Yes, if we try to offer to God our works in order to justify ourselves before Him, they are as filthy rags. But when we offer our works to God through Jesus Christ, they are not filthy rags. If we offer works of righteousness through Jesus Christ, they are spiritual sacrifices. What are the spiritual sacrifices we're to offer? Well, I think that there's at least five. There's a sacrifice of prayer, a sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of faith, a sacrifice of resources, and a sacrifice of the body. The sacrifice of prayer we find in Psalm 141.2. It says, Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Incense, the evening sacrifice two things that were offered daily to God in the temple. 
we should offer prayers continually. Prayers of praise for who he is. Prayers of thanksgiving for what he's done. Prayers of intercession for others. Prayers of confession for our own sins. Prayers of supplication for our needs. Casting all our care upon him because as Peter later tells us, he cares for us. There's a sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. We should continually praise God for the circumstances in our life. Not in an artificial way, just to check a box, but in a genuine way. When we're praised, we should direct that praise to our Heavenly Father. It is a sacrifice to admit that God should be praised and not we ourselves. When we understand that every good gift comes from above, and when we truly believe that the good in our lives is not our own doing, but comes from the hand of the Lord, then we can genuinely, not artificially, genuinely direct all praise to Him. There's a sacrifice of faith. Philippians 2.17 says, Yes, and if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. How is faith a sacrifice? <clears throat> on the one hand, we could view this verse as saying that faith itself requires that we give up our own efforts to save ourselves. We're sacrificing our pride. But I think what's probably meant here is the Philippians' efforts, here in Philippians 2, 7, 17, the Philippians' efforts to grow the kingdom of God, their good works, in whatever capacity, were a sacrifice offered by faith. When we work toward the flourishing of God's kingdom in any capacity, and that could be, be something that we feel is very spiritual, some type of service uh, during a church meeting, or uh, some type of, of evangelism. Those things are, are wonderful and very good. But it's also taking care of children. That's one way that the kingdom grows. It's also uh, doing good work because people see you, they see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. There's a sacrifice of generosity. Philippians 4.18 says, Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Hebrews 13.16, But do not forget to do good and share, for with such sacrifices God is well-pleased. When we give even a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, we can do so as a sacrifice. When we recognize generosity as an opportunity to work as priests to God, that should motivate us all the more to give when we see opportunity. Look for opportunities to share with others. Uh, it can be formally. Maybe you know of a missionary that needs support, or it can be informally. Maybe you know somebody who needs a meal because they've been sick. And finally, there's the sacrifice of the body. Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. As priests, we are really to offer our entire beings to God. All of us. We're to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Christ has purchased for us a priesthood far superior to that of the Levitical priesthood. We no longer gather with fear and trembling to the veiled presence of God, but we enter his presence with boldness as priests of the holy, royal priesthood to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We serve as kings and priests like Melchizedek. And in Christ, we have the benefits of Adam restored and can approach God directly without a human mediator. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. I pray that as we uh, go from this building uh, throughout the week, that you'd let the uh, words from Peter penetrate our hearts and minds and help us to live uh, more fully 
what it means to be a priest in this New Testament era. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.